good morning. How are you today? It's a Chief Sunday, right? We hope that they're going to win this afternoon. Uh, we are in Mark, and we're traveling through and learning different things about ourselves as we reflect on the person of Jesus and what he does for us. This is an important text that we're looking at today about the, what's known as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. As we look at the text today, we walk away with one thing. That one thing is that when we have an encounter with Christ, we leave transformed. Anytime we have an encounter with Christ, we leave transformed. Now, it's amazing how certain things work together and change things. I'll never forget doing laundry one time, and as I put everything in the washing machine, and I never thought anything about it, it's just kind of normal, you put everything in, the cycles run, and then I pull things out, and something was wrong. Everything was a little bit of a lighter shade of color. Jackson, my son who's visited with us uh, here a couple of times, had decided at some point, he was five, that um, he had seen mom pour bleach in the washing machine uh, doing whites. And so he had decided to be a helper, had managed to get the cap off, and then had managed to put an, almost an entire bottle of bleach in the machine. And I didn't smell it. I don't know what I was doing. And so when I washed the laundry, things were transformed by uh, the presence of that bleach. It, it changed everything in that load of laundry. It's amazing when things come in contact with a change agent, how much it transforms those things. Well, let's look at our text today and see how this can work in our life, specifically as we look at what happens with Jesus this is Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2, and we are going to read through verse 13. After six days, these are the six days they've been out in Caesarea and the region there. So Mark's very specific about the timeline here. So they kind of hung out in this area. And so after six days, Jesus took, and notice who he takes, Peter, James, and John. These are the three of the twelve. So out of the twelve disciples, there were three that walked in a little tighter circle with Jesus. These were his inner circle. So Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. So in the same way that we've already seen through Mark, Jesus frequently retreats by himself to reflect, to pray, but this time, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him to go out and to do the same. Now, notice what happens. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son 
listened to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept his word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, for those of us in this room who have trusted you as their Savior, we know that there was a moment of transformation in our life where we gave our heart and our life to you and you changed us. God, we are eternally grateful for the way that you changed us. God, earlier as we were praying as a congregation, we were asked to pray for friends, family, and others that do not know you as Savior. And God, we come again asking in your grace, in your mercy, that you would save those individuals that were already on our hearts. Maybe it's our own children. Maybe it's our grandchildren. Maybe it's our neighbor, our coworker. God, would you save that person? God, as we look at this text and see the changes that are wrought in our hearts and our lives because of an encounter with Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would take us deeper into your word. Take us deeper into our relationship with Christ. Take us deeper in our understanding of who you are. We pray in Jesus' almighty name. Amen. Oftentimes, we call great spiritual experiences mountaintop experiences. Maybe coming back from youth camp, you had an incredible week where you had just spent time uh, in the presence of the Lord, away from everything else, and you had come face-to-face with an encounter with God. Maybe it was during a revival service at, at a church when you were growing up and you had a mountaintop experience where you came face to face with the risen Lord and, and he reached out and touched your life and you were rejuvenated in your faith. Or maybe that was your moment of salvation. For most of us in our journey of our Christian life, we have mountaintop experiences. And that is exactly what Peter, James, and John experience in this text. They have a mountaintop experience unlike any other. Notice in the text that as they go up onto this mountain, that Jesus is changed in front of him. Now in that northern region of the Sea of Galilee, there actually are quite a few larger mountain structures that are there in the topography. In fact, uh, one of the mountains in that area, you can go skiing in the wintertime. Uh, it's snow-capped. It's really nice. You can go skiing and then drive two hours and go swimming in the Dead Sea. You can kind of do both all in the same day if you really want to, right? So it's, there's plenty of mountains or hills to go up on, there's no recollection or, or, or reflection of the beauty of being able to see out over creation. Everything begins to center instead on the person 
of Jesus Christ and this transfiguration moment. Notice that as he's there, he is transfigured in front of them. So Jesus went up the mountain with the disciples in his regular clothes, they with him, and something happens where they see the glory of Jesus Christ. The disciples see what we someday will see face to face, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, when we will see the risen Lord. They don't see him this way again until Jesus appears in the upper room. We don't see an understanding of Jesus really in this way until we see the book of Revelation and we see Jesus the mighty warrior coming to claim his people and coming to claim his victory. This is Jesus transfigured as he will be, as he would be after his resurrection. But the disciples see his glory. And notice that everything is just beyond anything that they'd ever seen before. His clothes were dazzling, extremely white. No amount of bleach could get there. I think the way that the text is even laid out here, it's not even us with our technology could get it there, right? This is so unbelievably unphysical universe type of dazzling bright. This is unbelievably white. It is unbelievably dazzling. They are blown away. And we'll see where the text reflects on how blown away they are in just a second. But it's not just that Jesus appears in his glory. We see two other Old Testament saints appear as well on the mountaintop. We see, according to the text of Scripture, Elijah. Now, last week we talked about Elijah. Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet. If you know the story of Elijah, he was this great prophet who continued to proclaim the, that Jesus, well, that was Lord, that God is king no matter what, even at great expense of his own life, right? He was pursued by kings. He was persecuted. He did everything he could to tell the truth, but in the process, those who were in authority and power wanted to have nothing to do with him. They wanted to kill him. But according to the text of Scripture, as he reaches the end of his life, he is taken up in a fiery chariot into heaven. He does not face death in the same way that uh, the rest of us have. And he is taken up into heaven, leaving behind a school of prophets led by Elisha who carry on his ministry. Elijah, consequently, has always been seen in Jewish tradition as one who will return according to their reading of the Old Testament. That's why at Passover and really a lot of different uh, Jewish ceremonies, there is always a seat for Elijah with the expectation and the hope that he's going to show up, that he's going to be there, that he's going to somehow be there this one time. And so they set a specific place for him. So whether it's a circumcision or whether it's uh, actually uh, the, the Passover Seder, they always have Elijah's seat available for him should he show up. They expected Elijah to show up. And here the disciples are with Jesus. And who do they see? Elijah. But it's not just Elijah. Who else is showing up? It's Moses. Moses, the great lawgiver, Moses, the one who had ascended a mountain himself, who had 
seen God. We read in this passage in Corinthians about Moses and having to have this veil over his face because he had come face to face with the encounter uh, with God and there was so much of God's glory that had set upon him that when people looked at him, it was like he glowed. It was like he brought out that radiance every time that he was anywhere. So he had to wear a veil to kind of protect others from uh, even being able to see that. Moses, the great lawgiver, and when you look at the Gospels, you will find over and over again the scribes and the Pharisees continue to point to Moses because the Jews during this time period saw Moses as perhaps the greatest prophet. That's why when you read in the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews is very, very clear and explicit to show that Jesus is one greater than Moses. Jesus is one who's greater than the prophets. So no matter who the Jews had put forward as the most important one, Moses or Elijah, Jesus was better. Jesus was always better. Jesus was always understood as this Jesus is the one. Now, what would you have done? If you imagine yourself there in that space and and you're there with, with Jesus and you're part of his inner circle, you've seen some amazing things Now you're on this mountaintop, and unbelievably, Moses, you know it's Moses, Elijah, you know it's Elijah, your mind had to be blown. Not only were you seeing Jesus as kind of the glorified Jesus, but you're now seeing these two prophets, oh, and Jesus is having a conversation with them. The disciples are beside themselves. What on earth would you say? What on earth would you do? And the text tells us, if you look at verse 6, they did not know what to say because they were terrified. Now, all of us have different reactions to unbelievable circumstances. Some of us, when we face something that's just incredible, we get quiet. We get contemplative. We just sit back and we marvel. Maybe it was the first time that you went to the mountains and maybe you climbed a 14er or you drove up to Pike's Peak and you just look over the expanse that's there and it is unbelievable beauty. And you're just awestruck about the majesty of God's creation and you just sit and quiet and just reflect on God's goodness. There are others, when they see something that is unbelievable, it's like it kicks in another gear in their brain, and they can't stop talking. They say, oh, can you believe this? Look at that over there. Look at this. Unbelievable. Can you do it? It's like they just can't stop, and they just don't know what to do, and so in the process, words come. And we know that this is a problem for Peter, right? Peter seems to always kind of jump in. Peter's the one who tries to correct Jesus. Peter's the one who's always sticking it. This is just consistent with his character. So Peter, seeing this thing that's just blowing his mind, the first thing that happens is words come. Notice what he says. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. No kidding, Peter. You're you're seeing the glorified Christ. You're seeing Moses. You're seeing Elijah. This is a foretaste of heaven. Yes, of course it's good to be here. No kidding. But words just kind of coming, and they're just coming out. It's it's good for us. Let us set up three 
shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This word for shelters is probably taken and drawing to uh, what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles uh, in uh, Jewish tradition, where they set up houses uh, outside of their own houses that help them remember what uh, the wandering in the wilderness period was like. And uh, there's a whole structure with this. And it, it, it's, it's supposed to be part of memorializing something that had happened in the past. Peter jumps to, it's good, let's make a memorial. Right? It's good, let's remember this. It's good, let's make sure that this is forever remembered for everybody, and let's set up shop right here. They've been to that mountaintop experience, and Peter wants to stay. Now, perhaps there's been a place in your life where that's been exactly where you were. Again, as I referenced earlier, maybe it was like at a revival, maybe it was at a youth camp, maybe it was at some other point, but you're so connected with what God is doing and you're, you're saying, oh my goodness, I never want to leave. I never want to stop. This is just incredible. That view from the mountaintop, which is what this first portion of this text is all about, this view from the mountaintop is so good, we always want to stay. And then it's human instinct to try to memorialize that. Once we realize maybe I can't stay, how do I make it to where I can remember this in some way? Notice this. You ever been to one of those churches, and I may step on somebody's toes because I don't know what's in this building, but have you been in one of those churches where it's like this stained glass window was given in memory of, and they'll have someone's name. This pew was given in memory of, and they will put something there. This pulpit was given in memory. You can go, and it's like a plaque every time you turn around. They're creating a memorial to a person, and in the process, they're trying to remember and latch hold to something that God did that was so amazing and so good, but in the process, the direction and attention is focused to a person and not to Christ. And it becomes a problem. And in fact, if you ever go to one of those churches, I get to serve as interim pastor at many churches, when you find those, oftentimes you find people unwilling to look at what's outside of their building because they're so focused on the memories that they have on the inside of their building. They've created memorials. For Peter, James, and John, if Peter is indicative of their uh, entire experience, they would have stayed on that mountain and never gone and told a single soul about what Jesus had done. They would just camp on the mountain and say, hey, everybody, come to the mountain. Come to the mountain. The mountain's good. It's great. Hey, we saw Moses here. We saw Elijah here. We saw Jesus transfigured here. The mountain's an incredible place. Let's hang out at the mountain. Hey, everybody, come to the mountain. And it's all about the mountain. It's all about an experience, and it's not about the Savior. Is there something in your life that you have so elevated, and it may have been an incredible spiritual experience, 
that you have so memorialized in your life that just nothing else matters because that was the defining moment. I was at a church a few years back and uh, I was uh, the, the worship leader for a season and um, that's a sad story in and of itself. But uh, as we were there, we're, I was told we need to make sure that we do hymns. Great, I grabbed the hymnal. We're working through different hymns. And then I was told, no, 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 those are the wrong hymns. Okay, help me out. So the sweet ladies in the church gave me a hymnal with the correct hymns that I could sing um, in the hymnal. So it wasn't enough that we're doing hymns. It had to be specific and certain hymns. Now, I was fascinated by this. Um, Part of me was just my inner rebel that just wanted to say, okay, so those are the ones we're not going to sing. But part of it was, quite simply, why these? Why these particular hymns? And I started asking the question of a group of people in that congregation who had been there for a long time, what is it about this particular song or these particular songs that are so important to you, that that you say this is where we need to do this? To a person, when I had time one-on-one with them, they all talked about a mountaintop experience that they had had in their teens. And those were the songs that were sung during that crusade during that youth camp, during that event. So then I asked them, when was the last time that you had come face-to-face in an encounter with God since that point in your young adult life? To a person, not a single one had had another experience with God. Friends, they had so latched on to the things that had happened in their past that they had refused to see that our God is a living God who is engaging a culture around us. I can't help but think that there are some in this room because it's just part of many of our natures that we want to latch on to things so hard that we miss what God is doing and we miss what he's doing now and we miss what he's doing today. And consequently, we miss what he wants us to do in the world around us because our own personal experience dictates what we think is the best expression of everything. Friends, it should not be the case. Notice what Jesus does with this. I mean, it sounds like a perfectly rational and perfect solution, right? Let's, let's build this. They were terrified. I mean, it's just, just kind of saying, 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 but this sounds like a good idea. What does Jesus do? No acknowledgement. Nothing. In fact, what we see in the text is instead a cloud appears overshadowing them. This is a clear illusion and a sign that goes all the way back to the Old Testament that whenever God Almighty appeared on the mountain, whether it was Moses when he was on the mountain or whether it was this uh, when God would show up at the tabernacle in the wilderness, what always happened? A cloud descends and then a voice, right? So a cloud appears overshadowing. This is a clear hearkening back that God is about to do something, that he is going to say something. This is a moment that is so important. And a voice came from the cloud. Look at the text. This is my beloved son 
listen to him. This is not necessarily a declaration that we saw at Jesus' baptism. This instead is an instruction for the disciples to listen up, to pay attention, to make sure that you understand what Jesus is going to be saying to you. What God does in this mountaintop experience is turn the entire focus and attention away from the human inclination to create memorials, away from the human inclination to just be blown away and then want to camp there, and instead puts the focus directly back on Jesus. And that's where the focus should always be. Verse 8, suddenly looking around them, there was no one around them except Jesus. The focus of the mountaintop must always be Jesus. And that's what we need to remember. Not the emotion, not the song, not the accoutrements. The focus is always Jesus. So while the view from the mountaintop can be absolutely incredible, the view from the valley is also important to consider, and that's exactly what begins to happen starting in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, right, so now we're moving away from this mountaintop experience, now Jesus is beginning to speak to them, and he tells Peter, James, and John, don't tell anybody about this until he had risen from the dead. Don't tell anybody about what you just experienced or saw until I've risen from the dead. Now, again, if you're Peter, James, and John, remember, mind blown. How could you not go back to the other disciples? Oh, my goodness, you would never believe. We saw Moses. We saw Elijah. We saw Jesus in his glory. Oh, my goodness. And just, you could just imagine them waiting to tell their friends, their family. You would not believe what Jesus had done. They were so excited, and Jesus says, zip it, none. Not a thing until I've risen from the dead. This kicks off a series of questions. One of the things that we find when we move from the mountaintop into the valley is that oftentimes we have new questions. When we begin to think through and process, we have new questions. We have questions, perhaps, about final things. Questions about final things. This is verse 10. He kept his, they, they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. They still were trying to get their head around this. But if you remember a few weeks back, 8.31, go chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus had already explained this to them. He began to teach them, according to chapter 8, verse 31, that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. Jesus had already told them this. Jesus had already communicated this. But they have new questions about final things. What does it mean to raise again? Surely Jesus meant something metaphorical there. Surely Jesus meant something else. Surely Jesus did not intend to say that he was going to die. Surely Jesus just meant that it's the resurrection that we all face after our own natural death. Maybe that's what Jesus means, and they are questioning this. So in order to get at that 
question again because Jesus had already taught them. They begin to raise questions about trusting God's word. Questions about trusting God's word. Look at him and again what they say in verse 11. Instead of asking again for clarification about rising from the dead, they shift. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They are pressing in on a biblical understanding. They are questioning God's word and what must come first in Elijah. One of the things that we find when we come down from the mountain is we have questions about, does God's word really say? Because see, sometimes in those mountaintop experiences that you and I have experienced, we have a new sense of calling from God to go and do something. And as we come back down into real life, we begin to say, oh, is that really what God's word said? Was that really what I needed to do? Was that really what's going on? And for the disciples, as they're making these questions, they're, they're asking about God's word. Hey, what is this about Elijah must come first? Jesus has already taught on this question. Jesus has already indicated this. Jesus has already talked about this even in Mark chapter 8 when they talked about who do you say that I am. And some said John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Jesus had already answered these questions. So what does Jesus do is he takes their questions and he answers them. Elijah must come first and restore all things. And then if you look down in verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. What Jesus is saying is what the Old Testament is pointing to is one like Elijah who is John the Baptist. And he's clarifying this for the disciples. And what happened to John the Baptist? He suffered and he died because of his bold proclamation about the coming Messiah. But then there are other questions that we see. Why do we have to have a suffering Messiah? Why do we have to have a suffering Messiah? Look at verse 12, looking into their hearts. He says, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? If you remember again in the prior chapter, what did Peter do? He rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to suffer. He says, this can't be, this isn't going to be, it's not reality. And Jesus rebukes him at that point and tells him to get behind him, Satan. Jesus is answering their questions about suffering and saying and pointing to the scriptures about what is to come. For some of us today, maybe we are those who are experiencing mountaintop glory to glory type experiences in our own spiritual life, but I would bet that there are many more of us who are in some level of the valley. Or we have questions about God's word. We have questions uh, uh, about Jesus. We have, we have questions about suffering. We have questions uh, about final things. And, and these questions keep hammering us over and over and over. Where are we searching for answers? 
Friends, just like Peter, James, and John, the answers of our questions in the valley are always found in the person of Jesus Christ. Always. We don't go looking for answers in human philosophy. We don't go looking for answers at Oprah's book club. We don't go looking for answers elsewhere. We go looking for answers in the person of Jesus Christ and in his word. So whether we're on the mountaintop where it's all about Jesus or whether it's in the valley where it's also all about Jesus, friends, we come together to find that transformation in our heart and our life in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why, dear friend, if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, that the people around you, maybe that brought you or invited you, will talk to you about how Jesus changed their life because anyone who comes in direct contact with Jesus Christ, their life is forever changed. We're not perfect. No Christian is perfect. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, we reflect Jesus and we look to Jesus. So if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, dear friend, the text is very clear for you today. Look to Jesus. Find salvation in him alone. Call upon his name. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, the word of God tells us if we will confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. This could be your moment of salvation today. For those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ, friends, the word of God is incredible. It teaches us, it shows us, and it helps us. Did you know that there is only one memorial ever established in Scripture for us to remember Christ? One memorial. Peter, James, and John wanted to build tabernacles. Maybe you've participated in other kinds of things or, or had other things. There is only one memorial that Scripture talks about for us when it comes to following Jesus, and that memorial is found in the Lord's Supper. This is it. Our baptism is different. Our baptism is a declaration that Jesus Christ has saved me. That's what baptism is. But by Jesus' own words, when we celebrate the Lord's table, what we are doing is memorializing. We are remembering Jesus until he comes back. So for us, whether we're on the mountain or whether we're in a valley, every time we take communion, every time we take the bread, every time we take the cup, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. This is the memorial that we remember our Savior, that we remember his gift, that we remember what's gone on. This is our place to remember that when Jesus touched our hearts, we were changed forever. Today we're going to celebrate communion as a church family. We are going to remember that Jesus Christ came and he died on a cruel Roman cross because of my sin, because of your sin. In just a few moments as we distribute the bread and then later the cup, you take those elements and you hold on to them. And as you're holding that piece of bread in your hand, 
you remember what Jesus Christ did for you. That the cost of your sin was such that the only way to pay for it was through his death. If you hold that cup, you remember that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses our hearts. The scriptures say that it takes our sins, even though they're scarlet, his blood makes us white as snow. We are covered by the blood. So friends, as we celebrate communion as our time of response today, we do this to remember. We don't build edifices. We don't build other things or plaques or other pieces. We come together as the community and remember that everything that we do points and focuses on Jesus Christ and Him alone.